Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, you can find that underneath the chairs in front of you. And our passage will be on page 1157, page 1157. We'll be ready for the scripture reading in just a few minutes. But before that, I just want to start with a question this morning. And this question is uh, not the question that you have right now, which is, why is there a picture of a train on my sermon handout? We'll get to that. But my question for you is, if I told you that your intellect and your emotions are designed to work together, would you believe me? If I told you that your ability to think your ability to solve problems, to, to take in information and organize it and, and spit out an answer, that plus your ability to feel deeply, distinguishing from good and evil, yes, but also your emotional life, weeping or laughing, disgust and delight, joy and sorrow, eager anticipation and dreadful anxiety, if I told you that your ability to feel strong feelings and your ability to make rational decisions should be working together, would you believe me? Because we, we so often think that our minds and our hearts are at odds with each other, and that's just the way it is. That's the way it's supposed to be. We think there's nothing we can do about it. And we don't think this for any biblical reason, but because of experiences we've had. I'll give you an example is there anyone here who just loves animals and pets? There's already been talk of four-legged creatures in the service today. Any pet lovers out there? Have any of you ever had or maybe seen somebody who uh, they have what a sane person might say is too many pets at one time? Maybe like this guy. I'm, I'm just hoping that he's a professional dog walker or something, but I'm not sure a home packed with four-legged creatures. We have some friends in Iowa. Uh, I have to be careful because I'm being recorded. <laughs> we have some friends in Iowa who, uh, they lived in a small duplex, and at one point they had three dogs, two cats, and one snake, all indoor. They actually at one point had a lizard as well, but I think they got rid of the lizard so they could get dog number three. Probably a good trade. I'm not really sure at that point. Uh, and I'm not trying to pick on them if they ever watch this. I'm not picking on anyone here who may just love pets and have a lot of indoor animals. But I have to believe that since these animals are normally purchased one at a time, that at some point the decision to get one more animal shifts from intellectual to emotional. I just have to believe that. You know, we don't need him. We can't afford him. We don't have room for him. He's going to shed everywhere. He won't get along with the other animals, but he's fluffy, he's cute, I want him, let's get him. That's how, <laughs> that's how I imagine it going down. We make decisions sometimes based on emotion that our intellect is opposed to. Here's one that's more likely to apply to me. I don't really need that sixth piece of pizza. I know what's going to happen if I eat it. <laughs> But the first five were good, <laughs> didn't cause any problems. What's wrong with another piece? Why not? Once again, emotions over intellect, feelings over fact. And even with these silly examples, I'm in danger of 
putting a non-biblical view of emotions into your head because emotions are not the enemy. When our intellect and our emotions are, are pulling us in two different directions, though, we can be sure that either we're not thinking right or we're not feeling right because they're supposed to work together. And I'm going to try to show you that from God's word. They're supposed to be on the same team. So what is the relationship between knowing and feeling supposed to be? Well, some have rightly used a train to illustrate this relationship. The engine of the train is like intellect. It's like knowledge, truth. You can use the word mind, however you want to describe it. The caboose of the train is like emotions or feelings. Everywhere that the engine goes, the caboose is supposed to follow. If you have a train where the caboose is not following the engine, that's not a very good train. Here's the thing, though. All of our trains are different lengths. Sometimes we learn a truth from Scripture like, love your enemies. And our intellect gets it. We believe it because the Spirit convicts us. We know with our heads that we have to do this. And sometimes we feel good about it right away or almost right away. We're excited to do it. Obedience becomes our joy and our pleasure. When it happens that way, when it happens quickly, that's something to praise the Lord for, but it doesn't always happen that way. There are other times when the engine of knowledge arrives at love your enemies, but the caboose of emotions isn't there yet. Now, obedience is obedience, and it's good to obey even when you don't feel like it. You could maybe argue that it's even better to obey when you don't feel like it. But if we were in a world that wasn't cursed with sin, this distance between mind and heart would not exist. In fact, I believe that in the resurrection, in the new heaven and the new earth, obedience will always be our joy and our, our privilege, our pleasure. So the relationship between mind and heart, sorry, that's kind of hard to see, but the relationship between mind and heart is not about rank, but order. Mind is not better than heart, but when all is working well, mind is leading the heart. Intellect guides emotion. So I hope that at this point you're wondering, when are we going to look at our Bibles? <laughs> if you haven't noticed, there's something missing from this sermon on 2 Corinthians so far and it's 2 Corinthians, uh, but we're going to get there. I've seen, I've seen even some like heads nodding in agreement as I explain these things, and that's good. I'm glad you're tracking with me, uh, but as I, I, I just want you to know that if I don't prove any of this from Scripture, I haven't done my job. So we are going to get there. just have uh, one other thing I'd like to explain first in order to connect the dots so that we're ready for this passage, and that is that uh, we need to understand that faith is a form of knowledge. Faith is a form of knowledge. We might be a little hesitant to admit that because the secular world has set up this false dichotomy between science and faith. Uh, but the Bible shows us that at least sometimes faith and knowledge can be used interchangeably in some context. And our passage today is going to start in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we're going to look slightly before that, starting in verse 3 right now, so that you'll see what I mean about the connection between faith and and knowledge. In verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
So notice here that he is using uh, sight, or he's about to use sight as an illustration for faith. You don't really see the gospel with your physical eyes. It's a metaphor. Those who, those who don't take hold of the gospel by faith are spiritually blind. And we'll keep reading in verse 4 to see that. It says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. He's quoting Genesis 1 there, the creation of the world when God said, let there be light. God who said that has also done what? Keep reading. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the what? The knowledge. Faith is knowledge here. The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So faith is imparted to us by God. He gives us the ability to see, to spiritually see. When God grants faith to someone, he's giving them knowledge that the gospel is true. Internal confirmation. You can't have faith in Jesus and not know what he did for you. This is similar to what we say about Christian hope sometimes. We say that our definition of hope is a little bit different than when we use it outside of a church or a faith context. Our hope is a sure hope. The hope of heaven is a guarantee, not something we're just hoping works out and we're not sure, but it's a guarantee. It's the same kind of thing. Now, this has been a long introduction and a lot of information, but I want you to remember that just this one little sentence that I'm about to give you that will summarize everything I've said and everything that I'm going to say if, if intellect or knowledge is meant to guide your emotions or your feelings, another way to say that is that your faith should guide your feelings. That's our big idea. Your faith should lead your feelings. Let's read our passage, starting in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live, <coughs> live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the, the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we will look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. 
For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Once again, the big idea of this passage is that our faith should lead our feelings. And really, we see this by Paul's example. I was privileged this week to visit uh, Martha Law in the hospital. And Martha, if you're watching this, we are still praying for you. I read this passage to her since I was in the midst of studying it and it seemed appropriate for her situation. And after I read it, she told me that she often, when she's tempted to complain about suffering, she often thinks about the Apostle Paul and what he went through for the sake of the gospel. And he went through that without complaining, even encouraging others not to complain. But she didn't stop there. She said she also thinks about Jesus. She said it's so common for us to want to be like Jesus, but then the suffering starts, and all of a sudden we don't want to be like Jesus so much anymore. And there's a lot of truth to that. But in this passage, we get to see Paul suffering greatly, yet he's feeling and he's, he's emoting correctly in response to that. His feelings are being guided by faith that God has given him. The first thing we learn from Paul's example and Paul's instruction is that we are weak. We are weak. The first phrase in verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The treasure is the gospel or the knowledge of the gospel or faith in the gospel. The earthen vessel is our bodies. Some translations say jars of clay. If it's not clear, this is not a confidence booster for us. Earthen vessels, jars of clay. Paul could be saying it this way to, to hearken back to the book of Genesis where God made man out of the dust of the ground. As I said, he just quoted Genesis 1-3 and verse 6. So he could have that in mind as he's writing. But here's the point, fellow human beings. We are dust. We are dirt. We are weak. And yet, astonishingly, we have treasure within us. Those of us who are trusting Christ are carrying treasure. Skip ahead to verse 8, where he continues to expound on our weaknesses. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Notice how the weakness here is expressed in a very emotive, expressive way. This isn't your teenager or your spouse coming home from work at the end of the day and you ask them how their day was and they say fine or good or they they grunt (laughs) Paul is emoting this isn't a one syllable grunt that leaves us wondering what's going on he's afflicted perplexed persecuted and struck down but not interestingly crushed or despairing or forsaken or destroyed bad things are happening to him but he is controlled led by his faith He's got a treasure, but he's weak. Even in the midst of weakness, he's remaining anchored to some truth. Verse 7 starts with, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, but it ends with, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Whenever you're studying your Bibles, especially in the epistles, but whenever you're studying your Bibles, the words, so that, are so important. They tell us something. So that gives us answers, gives us reasons. We learn that we are weak by design. 
Number two, we are weak by design. Second half of the verse, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And we see so that again in the second half of verse 10. Verse 10 starts always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, here it is again, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death works in us, but life in you. Second Corinthians is about how ministry happens. Paul just said, death works in us, life in you. As a result of my ministry, that is death, Paul is saying, life works in you. Every good husband knows that in order to be a good husband, his selfish and childish desires have to die for the sake of his wife. That's how ministry happens. Every good mother knows that strong and godly children aren't produced by a woman who is constantly whining about me time. That isn't about, that's not how ministry happens. We're weak by design. And this is true of all ministry, not just ministry in the home. But if you're serious about wanting to accomplish the ministry that God has given you, no matter what roles you have, you must be willing to die. Please remember that phrase, willing to die, because we'll come back to it in the later part of the sermon. But the weakness and fragility that we all have and that we all feel is by design. It's a feature. It's not a bug. It's part of the design. The psalmist knew his weakness and smallness compared to God, didn't he? Do you remember Psalm 8? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And and Paul will say later in this letter, in 2 Corinthians 12, that a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The so-that's of our passage today reveal to us that our weakness and the pain that we go through, the things that make us feel so much that something's wrong, they happen so that Jesus can be manifested in our body, so that we can show Christ to others. What a purpose. What a design of our God. What a reason to exist, to manifest Jesus. I believe that in our culture and our age, there's a widespread crisis of purpose. I don't think the average person, probably not even the average Christian, has ever sat down with an open Bible and tried to figure out, why did God put me on this earth? Now, many of you will have the answer ready on your tongue, I exist to glorify God, and that's a great start to a life purpose, but but you all have a unique purpose beyond glorifying God how how are you going to glorify God like what about the gifts that God gave to you specifically allow you to glorify God in a way that other people can't glorify God 
God gave you unique gifts. And if you've been with us here at Calvary for some time, to the point where you're a member or maybe soon to become a member of this church, we need you to exercise your unique gifts in this congregation. I've said I believe there's a crisis of purpose in this world. There's this website that recently reported that uh, there's this profession out there that 75% of children from the ages of 6 to 17 want to pursue. Any guesses what that is? Three out of four children who are between the ages of 6 and 17 want to make YouTube videos for a living. Some heads nodding. Some of you knew that. Assuming the website's accurate. Now, there's a difference between profession and purpose. Fair enough. Some Christian kids will grow up to be YouTubers to the glory of God. That's true. But with numbers like this, do you see what I mean when I say crisis of purpose? I don't think Christians have a good handle on their reason for existence and how they can use their unique abilities for the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians, the letter before this one that Paul wrote to this church, Paul was trying to teach them how to do this, how to use their gifts. And that's where he gave the famous illustration of the church as a body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read a few verses. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. So children and teens who are not very present because of Sunshine Ranch, you can tell them later. (laughs) You have an opportunity to stand out in this generation. Everyone wants to be the mouth. Everyone wants to be the face. Stand out by taking your place in the body wherever God has put you or wants to put you. Like, like, find out what you're actually good at and be really good at it. Like, do it really well. That's what it means to be a Christian blank. Luther has this great quote about what's it mean to be a Christian cobbler. It doesn't mean that you sew little crosses onto the shoes. It means you make a great shoe. That's what it means to be a Christian school teacher, a Christian accountant, whatever it is. Sometimes churches and Christian schools think that because they have the truth, they can make compromises on quality or aesthetics or whatever it is. In reality, if we were confident that we had the truth that people needed, we would try to maximize our faithfulness by making things as excellent as possible. Find your purpose. Figure out what God has built you to do and do it as excellently as you can, remembering that you'll have to also embrace your weakness because we are weak by design, to rely on God. You're really just a clay pot with some treasure. Recognize that God made you weak so that Jesus could be shown. That's why. To show that he's strong. And what episode of Christ's life shows his strength more clearly than probably any other episode? Something that happened to him while he was on earth. Something that we will share in in the future. This is what gives us hope 
the reason we can be willing to die. I'm talking about the resurrection. Do you understand that we are weak so that we will put our hope in the resurrection? We all hope in something, but we need a hope that can't be snatched away. The dying of Jesus and the life of Jesus were already mentioned in verse 10, I believe, uh, alluding to the resurrection there. But in verse 14, the resurrection is explicitly named as our hope. Look at, look at verse 14 with me. We'll start with just the first word, knowing, already established that that is an important word here. We skipped verse 13. Let's, we'll come back to verse 13 in application, but let's just back up a few words. Uh, he ends verse 13 by saying, we also speak, and then he says, knowing. We speak knowing something. Well, what is it that we know? We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. So what is the truth that gives confidence for ministry? It's the resurrection. Not only the resurrection of Jesus, but also what his resurrection means for us later. The Corinthians, as I mentioned, already received a letter from Paul. In that letter, there is this chapter that is dedicated to explaining the significance of the resurrection in great detail. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and is probably worth reading about every month of your whole life. And if you're new to Christianity, it's probably worth reading about every week for a while. But if you feel like your life is meaningless, it's probably worth reading about every hour. Because we need to be reminded of the importance of this central truth of Christianity if we're going to live a life full of purpose and meaning. So let's see what Paul says about Christ's resurrection. It's only a couple pages away from where you're at, so if you'd like to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15... We'll start in verse 17 and just read a few verses. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That sounds bad. Then those also who have fallen asleep have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Christ is the firstfruits of the harvest. Do you realize that if you've trusted in Christ, if you recognize his lordship, in the same way that Adam's sin was yours as your representative, so also Christ's resurrection is yours. We need a hope that can't be snatched away. And we're just scratching the surface of talking about verse 14 and the resurrection, uh, but this is going to serve as a transition to the application of this message because the application is all tied up with the concept of the resurrection that is coming. Everything that we are supposed to do and everything that we are supposed to feel is, uh, is a result of the resurrection. Everything we feel here is supposed to follow the engine of knowledge, the engine of faith, and that faith is in the resurrection of Jesus. So when I say your faith should lead your feelings, I'm talking about your faith in the resurrection specifically. That's where our hope needs to be, somewhere it can't be taken away from us. 
And when our hope is in the resurrection, we speak well. That's number one for application. We speak well. As mentioned previously, this is not any kind of speaking. This is speaking truth to those who need to hear it. And doing that no matter what our circumstances are. Paul has experienced being chased down, being persecuted and punished by people who do not want him to speak. What enabled him to control not only his actions but his feelings? It was his faith, the knowledge of the resurrection and what that means for us. Verses 13 through 15 say this, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you for all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. I'm not sure how else to say, except for our boldness problem is a faith problem. He quotes the psalm, Psalm 116, to say, I believed, therefore I spoke. It's a psalm about believing and praising in the midst of affliction, which is why he continues the way he does in verses 16 through 18, with our second application point where we will spend a little more time. Not only does hoping in the resurrection cause us to speak well, it also causes us to suffer well. Many of you know that the following verses, 16 through 18, are incredibly meaningful. Many Bible pages have been stained with tears because of these three verses. And I considered slowing down and preaching an entire message on just these three, then I would be the one crying. Nobody wants that. But these verses tell us how to suffer well. How to suffer well as Christians. What effect does the knowledge of the resurrection have on our suffering, and what sacrifices should we be willing to make because of the coming resurrection? Verse 16 starts, therefore, we do not lose heart. That phrase is also found at the very beginning of this chapter. I believe it to be referring to fear. We don't lose heart, meaning we're not afraid. The resurrection makes us fearless. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So the reason we can be fearless is because the inner man is being made new, being restored. Your current physical body is decaying. Newsflash, right? It's dying. Churches used to have cemeteries uh, in their front yard to remind the congregation of that every time that they came to worship. Your body's dying. It's not supposed to. That's not a feature. Human death is not natural. It's, not, uh, it's, it's the result of a curse placed on humanity because of sin. Verse 16 is saying that although the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being restored to what we were originally supposed to be, renewed, but not all at once, day by day, it says. And what is the process that allows this slow transformation to happen Well, verse 17 continues, momentary light affliction. That's the answer. That's the process that God uses to renew our inner man. Affliction, suffering. 
1 Corinthians, or sorry, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 also talks about comfort and affliction. These were preached a few months ago in this series. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort others who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So there he mentions the usefulness that suffering has for increasing our ability to minister to others. But here in chapter 4, he's telling us what suffering does for our own soul. But notice the adjectives that he used to describe the affliction. He calls it momentary and light. Suffering by its nature does not feel momentary or light, does it? To those that are suffering, it's almost offensive to describe it this way because as we all know, when we're in the midst of difficulty, it feels heavy and it feels like it will never end, at least not soon enough. And it also feels like we're alone, like we're the only ones that have ever felt this way before. How can Paul, who is suffering as he writes this, say that anything you go through on this earth is momentary and light? only because of what he's about to compare it to. Size is relative. And if, if I say something is big or small, you should say compared to what? Many of you have probably seen videos that attempt to show the vastness of the universe. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's always zooming out and zooming out. It'll start with an image of a person and then zoom out to show the person standing next to a tall building to show that compared with a skyscraper, a person is almost nothing. And, and then it will zoom out again to show the building next to a mountain. And all of a sudden, the building is barely visible compared with the vastness of the mountain. And then it will show that this huge mountain is only one of many mountains in the, in the Rockies, which stretch all the way from New Mexico to Alberta, Canada. 3,000 miles of mountains, and a singular mountain isn't even visible when you have the whole in view. And you zoom out again to see the whole earth, and you find that the Rocky Mountains are just the size of a paper cut on the planet. But you can keep going to find that our earth pales in comparison to Jupiter, and, and Jupiter pales in comparison to the sun, and, and the sun is actually one of the smaller stars out there. It gets dwarfed by a star, which can be dwarfed by another star, which can be dwarfed by another star over and over more times than we think possible. And we haven't even started talking about nebulas and galaxies, which scientists think there's at least two trillion of all of them with huge amounts of space in between them. And what's the point? Size is relative and, and our suffering seems so big and so long and so heavy when we're in it, but it depends on what we're comparing it to. So let's read verse 17 in its entirety. It says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's why your affliction is light no matter how much it hurts you now. That's why you can be fearless in the face of suffering and oppression. That's why a junior high boy named Michael Saranko can go to camp and listen to someone that he doesn't even know preach the Bible, and he can make a commitment to follow Jesus no matter what. If he wants my life or my kids or me to suffer physically, 
He's Lord, and I'm not. We don't get to make demands of God, but we do get to claim the promises about the next life. That's why your feelings can be controlled by your faith. In the eternal weight of glory that will outweigh all earthly suffering and sacrifices, our faith in that can control the way we feel in any given moment. Maybe the train is long, maybe it takes time, but that's how it's supposed to work. There might be some who haven't had this aha moment about the hope that a physical resurrection is supposed to bring you, even in this life. Let's say that it's your dream to retire while you're still relatively young with enough money to live out your days sailing on a boat on the shores of Ford Lake. Are there... Are there bigger lakes in this state? Okay. <laughs> Let's dream big. One of the great lakes instead. <laughs> Let's say that's the dream. That's what we're working for. Let's say that just a few years before that dream is realized, there's an opportunity. Maybe at that point, it's time for Calvary Baptist of Ipsy to plant a church. And maybe at that time, the church is going to be planted in the almost landlocked state of Ohio. Now, I know that asking a true Michigander to help reach the Buckeye State is kind of like asking Jonah to go to Nineveh. There's, there's some parallels there. But maybe there's an unexpected opportunity for you to use your retirement for the Lord instead of for yourself. Is it worth it to give up your dream? Well, it is if you have faith in the eternal weight of glory that far outweighs all pain and all pleasure of this life. But here's the aha moment that I referred to before this that some of us maybe haven't found. Don't you understand that a physical resurrection will probably have better boats and better lakes than we have here? Like The resurrection is, is going to be better. How does taking away the boats and the lakes make it better? <laughs> If you know Christ, your desire for boats and lakes or whatever, whatever that thing is, that desire is going to be sanctified and glorified in the resurrection, assuming it dies here. And you'll be able to enjoy all the things that the Lord gives you without the stain of sin. Paul calls it an eternal weight of glory. Jesus, in Matthew 19 says that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The resurrection is the why of your courage. It's the why of your contentment and it's the why of your commitment to ministry in this life. But the how is found in verse 18 which says, while we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So it's not really about the lakes and boats. I do truly believe that those things will be there. 
because it is a physical resurrection, but that's not what we're looking forward to. You might say, all this sounds great and it makes sense, but my feelings haven't caught up yet. The train between my faith and my feelings is really long and and it's hard for me to get excited about the resurrection when my boss is hounding me and the bills are always coming and my kids are growing up too fast and, and my wife is slipping away from me. Some of those things do have practical wisdom steps that you can take. Uh, This verse isn't teaching you to ignore your family or your kids or your boss or anything, but it does tell us that we need to focus on spiritual things. It tells us where we need to fix our gaze. So get on your knees, Calvary, and focus on what's most important. What did God put you here to do, and what are you going to do about it? Don't, Don't look to this world for fleeting pleasure. Look to the things that are not seen. Put your hope in the resurrection so that you'll be willing to live and die for the ministry of the gospel. Have a rich and robust faith that is strong enough to lead your feelings where they ought to be. Let's pray. Father, help us to meditate on these truths and to to fix our eyes on whatever was said that is true. Sanctify this sermon so that if anything was misspoken or misunderstood, it can be corrected by your revealed word. And help us to truly hope and believe and know and feel that the resurrection is coming. I pray that that would change our priorities. We don't, we don't need to squeeze every ounce of pleasure out of this life now because you've promised another one. Help us to be willing to make sacrifices for you and help us to want to do that because of the promises that you've made to us. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.